Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Today, we bring you a show about the Star-Spangled Banner, the national anthem. But we're having this conversation not to celebrate the nation, but to explore the complexities of patriotism in this fractured post-Roe moment in our country's trajectory. Right now, we're listening to Jimi Hendrix's rendition, a shredding and rebuilding of the original song, which Mark Clegg says inspired him to write the book, Oh Say Can You Hear, a cultural biography of the anthem. Throughout American history, Clegg writes, The Star-Spangled Banner has asked and in turn helped to answer this fundamental question. What does it mean to be an American? We'll talk with Clegg and you about the curious persistence of this song, the protests enacted through it, and the contours of patriotism. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Mark Clegg's new book, Oh Say Can You Hear?, tells the strange story of how Francis Scott Key's lyric, The Star-Spangled Banner, became the song Americans perform to recognize the nation. We do it in the military, before sporting events, and at sundry other times when people gather together. While some versions are transcendent and others tragicomic, each version, Sprague says, sends a message about the nation the performer and the audience want to live in. Even famous protests like Colin Kaepernick's taking a knee on the NFL sidelines recognize the anthem itself is the moment to say something about the nation. And right now, a lot of people in the Bay Area are struggling with how out of step our nation seems with our values. The banner is inescapably linked to this country, and so we tell its story today. And here to do it, we have Mark Clegg. Welcome to the show. Hey, Alexis. Great to be here. So as you open the book, you talk about how the banner can show us a, quote, constructive patriotism in the song's multiple forms and ever-changing messages. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, really, one of the things that inspired me to write this book was my own relationship to patriotism and to the nation. I mean, I think when I was a kid, you know, I heard the story of Francis Scott Key and the anthem and sort of you know, really bought into the ideals of the nation and and what I believed was, you know, the 
the arc of time and history leading towards justice. And, you know, my own sort of, I think, crisis of patriotism led me to explore my relationship of the song. And I, I think one of the things we do is we misunderstand what patriotism means, right? That it's not a kind of static worship of uh immutable icon, but it's actually a practice. It's a verb more than a noun. It's something we do. And for me, the Star Spangled Banner is a call to that citizenship. It's a call to get involved, to sort of be part of the democratic experiment. And it's it's up to us to invent what that song means to us today, not to be stuck in what it may have meant in the past or how it's sometimes used as a political weapon to sort of have one tribe sort of beat on the other tribe. Yeah, you know, the the definition you gave for patriotism in the book is one I actually quite like. I'm going to read it back to you. Patriotism is the expression of love and devotion to the country, whether realized in celebration of the nation or expressed in the hope of protest. The possibility to choose between these modes makes patriotism valid. And I was hoping maybe you could connect that definition of patriotism to the version of the song we heard from Jimi Hendrix, which I understand inspired you to write the book. Yeah, I sort of was riffing on the definition of patriotism by Alexis de Tocqueville, who was a French political theorist, you know, came to the United States in the 1830s to sort of figure out what this democracy thing um, that Europe had been hearing about was. And, you know, he talks about a patriotism of reflection, right, of, of a thinking patriotism that's about participating in the nation. And Hendricks is doing that. I mean, I was fascinated with that. It, performance. I think it's the greatest performance in history in terms of the depth and the complexity of what's being said. And it's a combination of patriotism and protest. So on one level, um, Hendricks, you know, who was a a member of the 101st Airborne, the Screaming Eagles, paratroopers. I mean, he was a veteran. He had friends in Vietnam in 1969. This is a very personal exploration for him. We usually think of his Woodstock anthem as like a improvisatory one-off, but it, it wasn't. It's actually the midpoint and a two-year obsession he had with the anthem and I think his own relationship to the nation. And, you know, th- that was only stopped because of his early death and and, you know, not because he had figured it out. So I think one of the things he's telling us is this song helps us figure out who we are as Americans. And he sings the song on the strings of his electric guitar. You know, when he goes crazy, when there's this improvisation that sometimes people think of as burning the flag sonically, um, he's actually illustrating the story. He's telling the story of America. It's when we get to the words, you know, rockets, red glare, bombs, bursting in air. If you you say the lyric as you listen to him play on the Woodstock documentary, you'll see that that when he departs from the melody, he's actually telling the story musically. And so it's, it's those you know, sort of depictions of war that he refers to Vietnam, you know, the bombs bursting in air for me really refers to the streets of America during, um, you know, 68, the the sort of aftermath of Martin Luther King's assassination, you know, um, Robert Kennedy's assassination. So it's, 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 in a sense, a kind of picture, a snapshot of the the sort of social static of the nation at that moment. But it's also a moment for for Hendricks of incredible optimism. I mean, this is a countercultural, you know, festival. It's everybody said Woodstock was going to be a disaster. You know, the fences come down and people just sort of invade the festival. And yet, you know, peace and harmony reigns. People pull together. They help each other out. You know, so I think when he was closing that festival and sort of, you know, trying to sum up his experience at Woodstock, he said, you know, the youth of America, that's the future. We're going to take over. We're going to make a nation we want to live in. And so it's that message I think we hear at the end. You know, he quotes Taps, I think, in reference to mm. the tragedy in Vietnam and, and in American streets, you know, about race. But he he also ends 
positively. He ends with hope. He, he sings the word free. There's a big triumphant cadence at the end. And I think he's looking forward to a time when the people of Woodstock become the next generation. Let's go back to the other end of the time scale, though. Let's go back to where this song came from. Um, and, and let's just start out with Francis Scott Key. Who was this person? So Francis Scott Key was um, a lawyer in um, Georgetown. He lived in the District of Columbia. I think of him as a kind of founding son of the nation. He was born in 1779. His father fought on the U.S. side of the American Revolution, and his uncle actually fought on the British side. So he was a loyalist. So that's where the complexities of Francis Scott Key start. Um, He's a slave owner. He vehemently opposes abolition. He also fights in court as a lawyer for the freedom of Black Americans, men, women, and children who he feels are unjustly enslaved. Um, He testifies before Congress about the illegal slave trade in D.C. He prosecutes white rioters and, you know, violently um, destroying Black property and life. So he's a complicated character. He doesn't really fit the good guy, bad guy story um, we think of today as as the past um, because he's... He's mixed as far as being on the right side and wrong side of slavery. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just incredible that a person who owned slaves until the day, enslaved people until the day that they died, uh, also filed more cases on behalf of black Americans than any other lawyer in Washington, D.C., yeah, I was stunned by that. And and I should, you know, give a shout out to William Thomas, who's a historian at um, University of Nebraska, who created a website, you know, that sort of tells the story of the legal history of slave um, freedom suits in Washington, D.C. And he likens it to a kind of underground railroad, like a, a above ground underground railroad, a legal underground railroad um, to free um, blacks and who are held captive as labor in American history, which of course was legal during Francis Scott Key's lifetime. I mean, he's the, you know, the dist- the uh, a lawyer in the District of Columbia. He he has an official position with the government. He's charged with enforcing a law um, that's a, a horrific compromise with our own ideals of freedom. And uh, you know, he, amazingly enough, he frees the first um, person he owns in 1811. So three years before he writes the Star Spangled Banner, um, he also founds an organization called the American Colonization Society, which is sort of a bizarre organization. But it it you know when you it tries to sort of find a middle ground between abolition and slaveholding, which of course is impossible. Um, but he had this sort of you know hope that slavery could somehow end peacefully and no one would get hurt. Um, that did not work. Uh, the Civil War was the inevitable result of that. And and I think for me, the Civil War is sort of what, in a sense, redeems the song. I mean, on one level, you know, who Francis Scott Key was as a person is, is relevant to our understanding of the song today. I mean, it's the Star Spangled Banner is a symbol, right? The origins of symbols matter. They are the stories we tell about ourselves. But another part of that story that that I emphasize, which I don't think has gotten much play, is the role of the anthem in the Civil War. And it's really the musical rallying cry of the Union Army. So mm. you can argue that the Star Spangled Banner ended slavery in America because it was the song that motivated Union troops in battle. Mm. We're talking with Mark Clegg about his cultural biography of the national anthem. It's called Oh Say Can You Hear? And we want to hear from you about the Star Spangled Banner. I mean, the more that the producers and I learned about the song, the more we realized how much the anthem really stands in for our our troubled uh, 
history as a country and our, our fraught moment now. So we'd love to hear from you. I mean, how do you feel the national anthem reflects your views of where the country is today? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. What's your relationship to this anthem? Number again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's KQED Forum. You can email your questions or your comments to forum at kqed.org. So let's talk a little bit about the, the song itself. What exactly did he write, right? I mean, he, he didn't write the tune. The tune. He borrowed the tune. He just wrote these sort of this, these lyrics. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So part of what I was untangling for my students in my class on American music are these myths we tell about, you know, the nation, but also specifically about this song. And one of the myths is that Francis Scott Key wrote a poem that somebody else later discovered fit this melody. Um, in fact, you know, th- this kind of songwriting sort of the early memes of American history, right? That's the, the TikToks right now we're, <laughs> we're singing about our life, right? And sharing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Francis Scott Key did the same thing. So he took a popular tune that almost everybody knew, you know, it'd be like happy birthday today. Everybody knows how the song goes. And he wrote a, a set of words that talked about a historic event that he had observed. And he was trying to, you know, I think write basically a propaganda piece. I mean, one of the things I argue is that protest is part of patriotism and that protest is actually part of the history of the Star Spangled Banner. So, you know, we look at the Star Spangled Banner in America, especially post-World War II, you know, when we got the bomb and, and you know, we're able to sort of dominate the world militarily as, as kind of summarizing this incredibly powerful nation. Um, in 1814, we were not a powerful nation. We were in a, you know, post-colonial state. Um, you know, we had the British Army literally trampling Washington D.C., burning the Federal Building, burning the, the White House, burning the Capitol Building to the ground. Um, so this was a real low point in American history, particularly militarily. And so Francis Scott Key sees what he thinks is basically a divine miracle. It's the saving of the nation by the heroism of the men who included um, Navy, Army, and a militia um, who were guarding Fort McHenry, which is this fort that sort of guards the entrance to the harbor of Baltimore. And if the British feet had gotten by, they would have been able to bomb uh Brit or bomb Baltimore from behind and and really just wiped out the whole city. So, you know, that that moment of heroism, the men who sort of, you know, were basically sitting ducks because the, the British warships were the best ever and uh, at the time. And so, you know, we're um he looks at this as a kind of miracle, as the heroism of America, and he writes a song to celebrate that. We're listening to an 1814 version of the song. We're talking with Mark Clegg about his cultural biography of the National Anthem. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Uh, we are talking with Mark Clegg about his cultural biography of the national anthem. It's called Oh Say Can You Hear? And we just heard a little snippet of the great, great Aretha Franklin. I want to bring in uh, our first caller, Kristen from San Pablo. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you. I've been enjoying the conversation and I enjoyed the, hearing Aretha's rendition. And I really want to read the book now, too. <laughs> Yeah, fascinating uh, so things my, in there. My comment, yeah, my comment, it's interesting. I know I was listening to the discussion about Jimi Hendrix and then just listening now to Aretha. And I'm African-American, and I was also studied African-American history. So I personally am very compelled with African-American artists' rendition mm-hmm. of the um, anthem. And I'm wondering, is it because of just the history we have in the country? Or is it sometimes the, the personal sort of tortured history of the artist? And I wondered what he thought about... Um, on that point, yeah. Marvin Gaye's rendition of the national anthem, it was at a basketball game in the early 80s. And I think not that far after, he ends up being you know, killed by his own yeah. father. So I'm wondering what the author's take is about the history or the personal history of the artist and, and Marvin Gaye and any other artists he's been impressed by. And I'll just listen to, continue listening to this great conversation. Yeah. Well, hey, Christian, before we let you go, what do you think? What do you think it is about African-American artists covering the song? Well, I think, you know, from what I hear, you can just hear, you know, it's just the soulful, um, uh, you know, notes and tones in their voice that, you know, sometimes, you know, informed, you know, I guess by, you know, their musical training and also the history of, you know, the promise of America, but also the contradictions um, in American history. I think the author and you were discussing um, with Jimi Hendrix, and you can hear all of that in their voice, sort of the hope and the despair. And then, of course, that's, that's um, also reflected in the lyrics of the anthem. And the lived experience of the artist, and the lived experience of African Americans. That's what I. That's what yeah, I yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Mark, before we get to you, I just want to. A, a listener had a, a, a comment um, in in part on this too. Thank you so much for that, uh, Kristen. I really appreciate right, that, that comment. Okay. Um, uh, listener says, I put Marvin Gaye's interpretation of the Star Spangled Banner right next to Whitney Houston. She was, of course, the voice and sang it with full bombast like no other. And Marvin gave it a literal beat and made it sound like a soul single on a record, a beautiful display in and of itself, and a metaphor for the ingenuity, determination, and ability black Americans have had to often turn America's sour lemons into sweet lemonade for ourselves and, by extension, others. Shout out, too, to the Black National Anthem. Lift every voice and sing. Uh, Mark Clegg, this is obviously one of your key questions in the book. Um, You really work through this through a bunch of different chapters. Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree with Kristen and the the, the other comment. 
Um, you know, Marvin Gaye's version is from 1983. It was done for the NBA All-Star Game. And, uh, you know, he makes it his own. It is it is a soul anthem. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that the 1619 Project that Nicole Hannah-Jones has been working on has really pointed out the way in which the whole notion of freedom in America, you know, it's it's been Black Americans who've demanded that the nation live up to its ideals. And, you know, in these versions like Aretha or like Whitney Houston, um, you know, there's a way in which sort of I, you know, sort of gospel stylings are brought into the anthem that there's a kind of personal claim, a, a personal devotion that you hear in these songs where people are speaking in their own sort of, you know, their own vernacular voice, right? But they're, they're not only speaking for themselves, but they're speaking for the community. And for me, every single you know, performance of the Star Spangled Banner makes a claim, makes a political claim. It says, I'm here, I'm part of this story. I'm writing this story. I'm an author. I'm not, you know, passive in this story. And so for me, the Star Spangled Banner is a living symbol. It's something that we bring to life, maybe even more so than the flag. I mean, the flag can hang on a pole. We can look at it, you know, with the Star Spangled Banner, the only way to experience it is to perform it, is to bring it to life in performance. And so you have the magic of the artist and their personal statement. And so, you know, Aretha is probably the most amazing version. It's the longest versions in history. I mean, she sings it for over four and a half minutes at a Detroit Lions <laughs> football game, you know, just a couple miles from me here in, in Michigan. And, you know, she's accompanying herself on the keyboard and it's, it's Aretha. And, and the same thing was true the first time that I documented, she sang it, which was at the 1968 democratic convention in Chicago, which was hugely controversial. There was, it was nationally televised. There was a racist backlash. It's probably the first time that a performance of the Star Spangled Banner really generated national controversy. So this is before Hendrix, this is before Jose Feliciano. And, you know, people said horrible things about Aretha's version and it wasn't recorded or available. So nobody could counteract that. But Aretha got on and she said, that's, I sing it as Aretha sings it. I'm Aretha. I can't sing it any other way. And, you know, it, it does send a message that, that African-Americans, you know, have been the ones I think in American history who, have made, you know, called America to task and said, you know, we're not living up to our ideals. We're, we're not a nation of the free. We're not equal all the time. Mm. And this has got to change. And for me, singing the Star Spangled Banner is, you know, is a moment of opportunity. You, you get the nation's attention, like at the Super Bowl, at these, these moments of national broadcast, you know, Kaepernick is, is an amazing story. And, and it really, Kaepernick challenged me as a historian to dig deeper into this whole question, which you're right, is sort of throughout the book, but particularly in one chapter called The Anthem and Black Lives. And, you know, it's, it's really the critical story of American life. I mean, all of the recent advancements in civil rights, you know, um, marriage equality, all these things are, are based on the Civil War you know, amendments to the Bill of Rights, amendments to the Constitution. So it's it's the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that guarantee um, due process, that end slavery, that give African-Americans the vote, that are really the, the key um, sort of moments in right, American legal history. To cornerstones lead. now for so many other uh, exactly, freedoms. Exactly, absolutely. may or may not being, be being eroded right now. Um, Chris in, uh, in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, I just have a comment on, I'm kind of around the corner and I got traffic, sorry. Um, the, 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 the guest just touched on it with Colin Kaepernick. The national anthem, the flag, these are symbols of both patriotism and our American freedom. And so the, the right to protest it is kind of baked into, you know, what it means to be American. 
as does the patriotism behind it. So this tension, this conflict, if we can't protest it, are we like China or North Korea, where you can't protest this, this thing um, or these symbols? Or, you know, so what does it mean to be American? We have to be able to protest with the national anthem yeah. as well as the flag. So that's, that's kind of where yeah. my observation no, hey, Chris, thank you so much. And, um, you know, I happen to know Mark Clegg's going to agree fully with this. Uh, in fact, I have his quote here. The use of the anthem as a vehicle for protest is core to its very tradition. No, that's absolutely the case. And, you know, one of the things that I got into with the, the you know, the way Francis Scott Key wrote the song, right? He, he writes a lyric about a contemporary event, and he's really talking about the future of the nation. And one of the surprising things about this melody, which comes from a a London-based uh, musicians club. It was written in 1773 or just before. It becomes this kind of viral tune in American history. And I traced over 580 lyrics that are written to the tune we only remember today as the Star Spangled Banner that talk about the nation. And if you line them up from first to last, um, the most recent one, as far as I can tell, was by Stephen Colbert about four days ago. Um, <laughs> you know, and the the first one is 1790. It's written by Francis Hopkinson, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. But the one that Francis Scott Key did is number 136. So the point being that this is a conversation about the future of the country, and Francis Scott Key is joining the conversation. Others were part of that conversation, including a abolitionist minister in 1844 who wrote an incredible lyric, probably the most emotional and powerful one, um, titled, Oh Say Do You Hear? And it, it points out that in a nation that celebrates freedom, um, four million people are enslaved. So, you know, in 1844, this is a call using the irony of the lyric celebration of freedom to point out that the nation isn't free. And so, you know, it's always been a protest song. There were uh, women's suffrage songs. There were labor union songs. There were songs about, you know, the freedom of the press. There were songs about the need for universal education, songs about peace um, in World War One, all written to the tune we know only as the Star Spangled Banner. And so there's this kind of lyrical history, this conversation going on. And what's What's cool about it, I think, is that it's music, right? So it's not just the kind of like words on paper that you'd read in the newspaper, but these would be published in newspaper from town to town, and you would imagine them or sing them to the music. And so when you hit those high notes in the anthem melody, the ones that are so hard to sing, like that's the moment of passion in all of these lyrics. That's the crisis point that that needs to be addressed. And so for Key, it's Rockets Red Glare. You know, for Edwin Atlee, it's slavery. So, you know, there's, there's a a, a rich history of protest that's really essential, just as the caller said, to the history of America. I mean, there's nothing un-American about protest. In fact, we wouldn't have America without protest, right? I mean, what is the revolution but a protest and a breakaway, you know, from Britain? So it's 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 we really need to see protest as the lifeblood of the nation. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to also um shout out Mahmoud Abdul Raouf, who sort of mm -hmm. pre preceded um, Colin Kaepernick, you know, 1996, a basketball player, professional basketball player, uh, and ended up, uh, he, he'd converted to Islam, he ends up praying during, um, during the anthem, and in fact, kind of gets bounced out of the league, uh, pretty much just like Colin Kaepernick uh, did later, and, you know, he's got an autobiography out now, actually, on Kaepernick, uh, Kaepernick's books, uh, his publishing label. Um, and there's also a great um, volume of poetry about him called Rebel Elegant by a guy named Raphael Cohen. So if you're if you're interested in that tradition and and a lesser known episode in this kind of protest, um, check out Mahmoud Abdul Rauf. Um, Want to 
bring in a Peter in San Francisco. If I can click on you, Peter. Hey, Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Um, I don't know if you've seen the the play Angels in America, but the the black character is written by Tony Kushner, and the character Belize says in it, uh, the quote is, you know, the white cracker who wrote the national anthem knew what he was doing. He set the word free to a note so high, nobody could reach it. That was deliberate. And so I thought maybe you could comment both on that quote, you know, in the context of what you've just been discussing, and also just the word free and how it's become sort of a symbol for artistic, um, you know, people who, you know, people who have really shown off that word and that note specifically in the song. And I'll take my comments off, off the air. Hey, thanks so much, Peter. Really appreciate that. Yeah, then that's a great comment. And yeah, Peter Sagal pointed that line out to me in, in his review he did of my book for the Times. And, you know, it's, uh, I, I know that play. We did it here at the University of Michigan with some of our students uh, maybe two years ago. And uh, it's an incredible line. And it, and it really is that, that's, you know, the, that word, free is set to the high note. And so the notion of liberty is is key to American rhetoric, Americans, you know, the Declaration of Independence, obviously, you know, the, the Constitution, this, you know, we've all been debating what does freedom mean? What is liberty? Who does it apply to? Who who qualifies, right? And so this this question is really fundamental to the question of America, right? And so, I mean, for me, like one of the great moments in anthem performance history is Whitney Houston's performance of that very word, where she she not only flips up a fourth, like hits this high note two octaves above the lowest note of the anthem, you know, and her virtuosity and power really comes comes forth but but she does it listen not... to that one Should yeah we, let's we, do have, we have we have awesome. that we have that queued up um let's listen to whitney Okay, Mark Clegg. Now we got your musicologist hat on. You you were just talking about this. Tell tell us what you're what you're hearing in that. Well, I mean, it just it hits me viscerally on one level. You know, it just sort of makes me smile and and spine tingling and all that kind of stuff, just literally. So that's part of it. But you know, what I'm thinking about actually is is what she's doing. If you watch the video online, I mean, her choreography for this is really carefully designed, and uh, you know, she hits that word free there's that kind of gospel, you know, gesture going up to that, that high note that really emphasizes it, but in a way that like, I have never heard anyone else perform it that way. So that's, that is signature Whitney Houston, but it's also, you know, that statement that we talked about 
earlier from Kristen about about the notion to to really celebrate African American identity in the song to say this is this is the critical issue of freedom. But when she you know gets to the end when she says in the home of the brave and she sort of extends it and almost makes this this other melody out of just the one word. Mm. If you watch her, she raises her fists you know to the side and then straight up in the air, and the. The black fist in the air is a is a, a statement of power, right? It's also a statement of protest that for me harkens back to 1968 and one of the very sort of mm. first important international protests around the Star Spangled Banner when Tommy Smith and John Carlos, you know, winning, you know, coming at well, gold and, and um, bronze in the 200 meter um, end up raising- Shout out to San Jose State. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, right in yeah. California. So an incredible- um, history, Harry Edwards inspired them, who was professor at San Jose State. Um, so it's, it's, but, you know, when Whitney raises both fists in the air, for me, it, it echoes that protest from 68, because um, John Carlos and Tommy Smith sh shared a single pair of gloves. So when they raised their fists, they raised a right hand mm. and a left hand. Mm. And Whitney does exactly the same thing. And, and I remember that moment in 1991, it's from the Super Bowl 25. And it was, you know, the beginning of the Gulf War. And, you know, people just they, they the sincerity with which she delivered that song, even though it's so personal and actually so really unusual as a musical statement from a musicologist. I mean, it's in four four time instead of three four time, which you know is a little inside baseball for music theory, but it's it's like turning a waltz into a march. You know, it's it's completely bizarre. But for me, the reason it feels right is because it changes the anthem, that original tune, which is a, a rolling three four, actually sort of a party song in 1814. I mean, Francis Kaki is saying, hey, we won. What what Whitney does is she turns it into a sacred gospel hymn to the nation. I mean, 4-4, she slows it down, she stretches out, she fills that extra beat of every measure with just the incredible resonance of her voice. And she claims that song as hers. And it, that's a transformative moment. And I, I think that gesture at the end, which I don't think anybody talked about in 1991, you know, in the mainstream media anyway, you know, for me was really a, a, a shout out to 1968. And a key to kind of unlock that whole performance, yeah. Uh, you know, another listener writes, bar none, for me, the, their favorite rendition is Whitney Houston's rendition at the Super Bowl in 1991. Not at all bombastic, but splendid and soaring. We're talking with Mark Clegg about his cultural biography of the national anthem. It's called Oh Say Can You Hear? And we, we want to hear from you, and we have been hearing from you some great calls and comments that, you know, in this time of turmoil, you know, or a week out from the Dobbs decision, how do you feel the national anthem reflects your views of where the country is today? And what's your favorite rendition? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or KQED Forum. We're going to go into the break listening to the Jose Feliciano version, but I just wanted to get one last comment in. Growing up, Juliana writes, Growing up, my mom always encouraged us to stay seated during the Star Spangled Banner. She grew up in World War II Europe and saw the results of blind patriotism. But she was extremely patriotic in important ways, like always voting in every election, never trying to get out of jury duty. At the same time, she could see there was lots of work that needed to be done in this country, and staying seated during the Star Spangled Banner was a way to remind ourselves of that. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Mark Clegg about his new book, Oh Say Can You Hear, which of course is about the Star-Spangled Banner and the deep complexities of the song's creation, its performance, and our reception of it. I want to bring in Shelly from Richmond. Shelly, welcome to the show. Well, hello. Thank you. Um, I'm so so happy to be here. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. Oh, great. Uh, Welcome. Welcome. Um, I just want to say, Mark, this book sounds phenomenal, and I can't wait to go down to my local bookstore and uh, local, uh, you know, uh, independent bookstore and purchase it because <laughs> uh, I I can't wait to read it. I um I wanted to say that uh, first of all, I find it super telling that um, a lot of the folks calling in are talking about, you know, as African Americans, which I am as well. You know what the you know how complex this relationship with mm-hmm. the um, with the anthem has been, and for me, um, I wanted to share that. Uh, you know, I grew up in Berkeley, and I always had a really healthy um, sort of. Uh, uh, well, I just kept the whole idea of patriotism was pretty, um, you know, not my thing <laughs> yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. Not because I don't love my country or love living here, but as you know, it's you know, it's it's tricky. It's really tricky, and um, and therefore the, the anthem itself was always like I pretty much just I never gave it any mind until one time I was actually asked to sing it um, for my um, my son's. Uh, little league um, team and and I really listen. I really thought about it and I listened to it and it was that was when I realized that it's a question. It's like mm-hmm. oh say does that banner still fly over the land of the free? And that's when it really hit me that um, I mean so many things that I know I'm going to learn more about when I read the book. But that's that was super super telling to me and and just really hit me hard. It's like oh it is a question. It's not just like a uh, it's not just at, it's not just saying oh we are the greatest. It's does is are we still are we doing this are we free and um and you know whether or not francis scott scott key intended that i don't know but i know that that's my my relationship to it has changed immensely and i've also been able to play my guitar uh play electric guitar a la hendrix um at my son's little league um little league uh, performance and that felt like nothing else that it it, it just yeah oh man <laughs> shelly pretty amazing experience <laughs> oh that's that is a really beautiful reflection and next time we do a show on the banner you're gonna have to call in and sing i'm not gonna put you on the spot now but now that i know you could do it uh, uh thank you so much for that reflection both as a as a musician black american as someone who's sung the song um uh, uh i'm i'm so taken with that call. Uh, Mark, um, can you tell us that was intended, right? It was a question in the original lyric too, right? 
No, absolutely. And and that's a great observation uh, that Shelly brings up. And I'm I'm so glad, you know, that she called. And uh, thanks to the shout out to independent bookstores, too. I'm glad I really want to support them, too. But uh, yeah, it's a question. I mean, on one level for Key, it's a pretty literal question. So he's, you know, stuck on an American truce ship. He's under guard on the Patapsco River. He's watching the battle from like six miles away. You know, we tend to see it depicted like he's right there and he's just looking at it. He's on British ship with surrounded by cannon, not the case, much less dramatic than that. But the morning after this sort of overnight all day bombardment of the fort, the fort, you know, his question is, did the Americans win or lose? You know, it did the, it does the country still exist on some level, right? And so he looks to the fort to see which flag is flying over the fort. Is it the, the, the stars and stripes or is it the Union Jack, is it the British flag, right? So, because the bombing has stopped. So when the bombing stops, that that silence, you know, has this question of like, well, who won? Who like, won? did they stop right. because right. they lost or did they stop because they took the fort and they're not going to bomb their own soldiers in the fort, right? And so when he sees, you know, the flag, that's the moment where he knows that the country is saved. So on one level, this is a very literal question, but I, I think Shelley's right on the money in the sense that this is also a metaphorical question, right? This is a question of like, are we brave enough to live up to our ideals, right? And and the, the high note on free, you know, puts that question, I think, with particular intensity. And so, you know, Key is, is really asking both. And I think that's one reason why the, the song is so successful. I mean, it's, it's written about a specific battle, but it doesn't have any details about the battle you're not seeing the names of specific soldiers or the it doesn't say fort McHenry, it doesn't say baltimore it's it's it really is based on this this notion of the flag and the flag because it has stars from all 50 states you know it encapsulates all of us and so the anthem is the sonic equivalent of the flag and that question you know for me is the question we ask every time we sing the anthem we we ask that question anew or at least we have the potential to and i think you know the big thing i was trying to do with my book is explore my own relationship to patriotism but also to say, like, if we really want to understand ourselves, we can't just sing this song or really do anything about American democracy. We can't take it for granted, right? We have to we have to be really thoughtful and conscious and, and sort of examine this history in detail to understand not only who we are now, but how we can go forward. Yeah. I want to bring in uh, Robert from Pacifica, who may prefer another song as the national anthem. Welcome, Robert. Hi, uh, thanks. Um, and enjoying your show a lot. I I'm uh, almost 80 years old, so I've lived with the national anthem since childhood, and um, actually never liked it as a piece of music. I've I've always preferred other national anthems, including O Canada or even the Soviet national anthem, which is really an exquisite piece of music. I think, however, for America, and I've thought this for many years, that America the Beautiful, which is much more singable. Uh, should be our national anthem. And if you listen to Ray Charles' version of it, I don't know how you could be convinced otherwise. <laughs> Thank you uh, for that, Robert. We actually have a look, some of it here queued up for us all. Oh, beautiful, far heroes proved in
You know, it's interesting. I think before we did the show, I probably would have agreed that I would prefer this other anthem. But now that I'm hearing it again, and, you know, its refrain is so plain on its face, you know, America the Beautiful, like in a sense now I'm starting to feel like this is actually even even done as beautifully as it's done by Ray Charles with this wonderful loping kind of rhythm, does in fact feel actually too patriotic. It feels like there isn't the complexity that is more reflective of our reality that we have in uh, the Star Spangled Banner. Now, I think you know, Robert definitely encapsulates a feeling that a lot of people have that that America the Beautiful is beautiful, right? It's an amazing song. I mean, the 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 words and the music come together in 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 gorgeous ways. And I think you know, in some ways, it's a less problematic um, anthem. I mean, it it doesn't have the the entanglement with slavery that the Star Spangled Banner has. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, it, you know, just saying the country is beautiful doesn't remind us of our ideals, doesn't doesn't challenge us to make them true. And I, for me, one of the things that's awesome about the Star Spangled Banner is that it it be, it is this flashpoint of controversy. I mean, there's never any controversy about America the Beautiful, but that flash that controversy when it happens, when we hear the dissonance resonating in Francis Scott Key's lyric, um, we're made aware of a problem. Right, we're made aware that we're not living up to our ideals, and so there's a way in which this complicated history, this messy history that you know I spend 250 pages talking about in my book, you know, is is actually an incredible value, right? So we, it's not about glossing over and just saying, "Hey, we're beautiful," and that's the end of the story. It's it's actually about digging in and and figuring this out. And and there's no no history of protest around America the Beautiful, to my knowledge, at least at least not with the same intensity. And mm-hmm. so I think actually the way it it pushes on our nerves, makes the Star Spangled Banner really effective. The other thing I could say historically is that at times of crisis, like when there's a flood, when there are tornadoes, when, when there's a war, when there's an attack, you know, when there's a need to galvanize people to action, the Star Spangled Banner, because the melody has this sort of vigorous athleticism, because it takes, I think, real sort of heroism to sing it, right? People say, well, another reason it's a bad anthem is it's too hard to sing. Well, the fact that it's hard to sing means it, it takes a commitment, means you have to to really, you know, kick it out there. Um, so for that reason, I, I think it actually sort of works better in times of crisis, um, even though I think as a peacetime anthem, America the Beautiful works great and lift every voice and sing and, you know, God bless America. There's so many different songs. I mean, in some ways, I wish we treated that ritual moment at a football game, not as a moment for only one song, but actually that we had a whole repertory we could draw on. Mm -hmm. And one thing that'll make Robert happy is that in 1977, they did America the Beautiful at the Super Bowl and they didn't sing the Star Spangled Banner. Mm -hmm. So there is some precedent. Um, You know, your, your book features this statue of Francis Scott Key, which many of our listeners may know, used to sit right in the kind of middle of San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. And the statue was toppled. And the photo that you have in the book is of an installation of the local artist, Dana King, who last Juneteenth sort of surrounded that statue with these sort of black ancestral forms that were sort of supposed to represent the souls that were lost in the slave trade. Um, How... How did you think about the way that this historical figure, this complex historical figure of Francis Scott Key, what is the right relationship to this person? And do you feel like Dana King's 
work, which is it's really beautiful, I think. Do you think that captures a way to have this relationship with Francis Scott Key? Yeah, I think that it's incredibly um, powerful work. I mean, the, the title of uh, King's sculpture is called Monumental Reckoning. And I actually traveled to Golden Gate Park. Uh, my daughter was living just up the street. Um, so I went to visit her and we, and we went down and I took the picture that's in, in the book. And, you know, for me, it was incredibly moving to see the empty plinth, this, this, this sort of marble case, if you will, that used to have this picture of, or this sculpture rather, of Francis Scott Key that had been, you know, toppled years, a couple years before, I think. And, uh, you know, but have it be recontextualized by King's sculpture, by creating these 400, you know, figures of, of the ancestors and really sort of pointing out again that, that there's a whole history behind this song and behind this issue. And, and we need to be conscious about it. So that's, that for me is, is the, you know, is, is a sort of redeeming moment is the way an artist like Dana King can, can change the way we think about the past and the present by transforming one artwork into another. And that's really the history of the Star Spangled Banner. I mean, that's what Whitney Houston does, right? That's what um, Edwin Alley does, you know, in, in terms of the that abolitionist lyric I talked about earlier. So this is this is the way culture works. It, it, it sort of nurtures a better vision of society when artists come in and disrupt our comfortable vision of the present with, with a different perspective. Well, you know, we've been talking about sort of the the heavy and deep elements of this uh, song through time. But we've had a couple people who've wanted to talk about the sort of kind of funny origins of the song. Elizabeth writes, I think it's funny it comes from a drinking song. I heard the original ones at Dickens Fair and liked it better. And Michael in Boston also has a comment about the original song. Welcome, Michael. Yes, hi. I think uh, at least some verses of the Anacreonic song deserve a place in the anthem because they talk about... uh, wanting to f- figure out how to mix sex and drugs properly along with music and uh i think that's very american and, uh, uh, thank the you of venus with bacchus is what vine oh wow um i i do um mark like the original song it, it really was like a british club drinking song right yeah it's from um group of musicians, a musician's club in London, um, founded in 1766 called the Anacreontic Society, and it's named after the poet Anacreon, who's a Greek poet. And one of the things that's sort of hard to connect with today is like things Greek, that's like ancient classical culture. But in this time in the 1760s, that's when like the Acropolis was being discovered and all these statues were being found and dug up by by archaeologists. And so this was hip happening popular culture in 1766. So this is the original song is a club song. It's a fun song. It's definitely this vivacious, upbeat tune. It's it's a musician's club. And so part of what's going on with the song that's interesting today is that it's written for skilled singers, right? So And it's written for a soloist, not for a crowd at a football game. So it's really a show-off song to basically say, hey, our club is better than your club because we can sing better than you guys can. So we're going to make these really high notes that that make us show that we're amazing musicians. So there's there's a whole story around that. Um, the the issue around whether it's a, a club song or a pub song is interesting. Um, it definitely has a toast at the end. They 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 toast the future of the club. They also refer to you know unanimity, friendship, love. You know, so it's it's sort of for me has this kind of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness idea. It's it's part of this whole 
sort of renaissance idea of the enlightenment, you know, the, the idea that sort of republicanism, the, the notion that people will vote and elect their leaders rather than have a king, um, which of course they had a king in London at this time. Um, you know, this is a part of a social transition towards democracy in England as well as in the United States. So I don't think it's an accident that we're using the same tune in a way. But, you know, I, I guess I dispute the uh, the drinking song thing just a little bit, which is that it's really about the club. And the club is is a a club that the first thing they do at their meetings is they have a symphony concert for like two hours and then they have dinner together and then they sing songs together. And so they sang the club song at the beginning of the second half of the evening. Their meetings went on for like five, six hours. So it's sort of like an episode of Glee where they start off with, with singing this anacreontic club song. And one of the interesting things about it is that the um, is sung by a soloist, sort of the club president. And then the last two lines are echoed back by the, the club members, you know. So originally in the 19th century, the Star Spangled Banner was actually longer than it is today because that last line, I'll say, does the Star Spangled Banner get wave line three on the rave, was sung twice, first by the soloist who could hit the high notes and then by the crowd. So interesting. So they, yeah. And so in our version of the song, the last two lines that would be sung back by the crowd would have been... Uh, <laughs> I can't remember actually right now exactly <laughs> the exact words this is why you can't have me singing the national anthem at the Warriors games well um, yeah I would say it is that Star Spangled Banner yet wave a line of the three and the home rave and that's yeah. that's part of the political function early so you know I mentioned that Francis Scott Key wasn't the first to use this melody it was used for like campaign songs for Thomas Jefferson the, the first really popular song set to this tune was called Adams and Liberty and it was part of you know, like the alien and sedition acts and like a, a time of incredible partisan warfare between the democratic republicans and the federalists and the Demo the federalists actually said the democratic republicans weren't good americans and they all needed to be silenced by these as seditionists um so mm. the division we have today like has lots of precedent in american history but um the the way in which the the statement was made and then the crowd echoes back is is the political function of this tune. So it recruits support. It creates community. And so Francis Scott Key is doing the same thing in 1814. He's He actually is looking at a divided nation because it's still broken up into Democratic, Republicans, Federalists, people who are pro-British and pro-French. Um, it's it's a, a time of a very weak military. As I said, Britain was walking all over us. They burned the White House to the ground, the, the Capitol building to the ground. He's calling for unity. He's calling for a strong nation. And that's not what he was seeing in front of him. So one of the things I point out is that since Key is giving a vision for a country, not as he's experiencing it, but as he hopes it becomes, there's a way in which the lyric from the very beginning is a protest. He's calling for change um, yeah. in this initial lyric. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating. We've been talking with Mark Clegg about his cultural biography of the national anthem. It's called Osei. Can you hear? Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. Oh, it's been a blast. And I really appreciate everybody calling in. It's really great to hear from people. And part of why I wrote the book is because everybody has love it or hate it. We all have a yeah. relationship to this song. And I, I wanted to have a big conversation about what it means. And Thanks so this so is really this is really what the book's about. Thank you. This hour of form is produced by Blanca Torres and Grace Wan. Marlena Jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell's lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, Chris Hoff, and Christopher Beale. Our interns are Jennifer Ng and Paul C. Kelly Campos. Susan Davis is forum senior producer. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Lady Gaga. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Fuck. 
funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.